Hello and welcome to Volleyball State, a look at college volleyball in six rotations. I'm Jeff Sheldon. And I'm Lincoln Arneo. All right. Upset. Shake up the top of several conferences this weekend. The recruiting rankings are out for the class of 2025 with some surprising names near the top. Plus, we are really excited about today's special guest. But of course, we are going to start today with the match of the year and potentially more in college volleyball that happened Saturday night at the Devaney Center. We will get into all the angles of Nebraska and Wisconsin. But first, hey, thanks for finding us on social media and following us on Twitter at Volleyball Pod. You can also email the show your thoughts, your questions, your ideas, your critical feedback at volleyballstate at gmail.com. We are part of the Podcast House Media Network. You can find all the great Podcast House Media shows online at podcasthousemedia.com. Maybe that's how you found us. And if that's not enough, you can find us all individually on social media. I'm on Twitter at by Jeff Sheldon. And I'm at Lincoln underscore VB. We got six rotations lined up. We will start off with the match that everyone has came here for us to talk about, which is Nebraska versus Northwestern. And we'll follow up that talking about Wisconsin a little bit as well, too. Uh, then we'll bring on our special. <laughs> you were so deadpan. I completely missed what you just did. <laughs> you know, you just bring that. Sarcasm. No, that's what the people want. They want yes. our hot takes on Julia San Giacomo. Yes. Her absence hurt Northwestern. But uh, we'll go rotation two with our special guest. We will have on the Husker radio analysis. Uh, Lauren Cook West will join us to talk about Husker volleyball and the Wisconsin match and other things. How she's how she does uh, radio broadcasting. Uh, rotation three, we'll get to the action around the Big Ten. And then we will, like Jeff previously mentioned, uh, talk about some upsets that happen around the world. We'll close out by talking about rotation five will be the 2025 team rankings. And as always, we'll wrap up rotation six with the week ahead. So that is uh, what we got uh, on deck. And like I promised, we will talk about the match everyone wanted us to talk about. Northwestern is swept in three sets. Nebraska looks great. Okay. Uh, Saturday night, let's move on to that. <laughs> Saturday night, Nebraska and, and Wisconsin. I'm I'm still replaying this match in my mind. He points from it, and and there's there is a hundred of them, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm probably going to miss some. Um, we can go through some of the key points of the match. Um, in in just a little bit, but obviously, number two Nebraska takes down number one Wisconsin in five sets, winning game five, fifteen thirteen. 9,100 fans at the Devaney Center. New school record to see Nebraska take down Wisconsin. Lincoln, you were there last night. Just start me off with what was the atmosphere like? What was the feeling inside that building, not only before the match, but as the match went along? Definitely. Yeah, I got there about 4.30. I wanted to avoid all football traffic, so I made no, uh, took no chances and got there way before even the gates opened, about an hour before they opened. Uh, and the line for the student section stretched out on the complete south side and also wrapped all the way around Hendricks. So the students were there. Some of them showed up till 11 o'clock. They were ready. I mean, and then once they opened the gates at 530, between 530 and 6 o'clock, that was some of the most full concourse I've ever seen. I think everyone came from the football game was planning to eat dinner at Devaney, but they were ready to go. It was electric. You can just tell, like you said, uh, the standing room only section up around the top ring. That was mm-hmm. completely full. I mean, that was uh, some some places it was two people deep, so they were they came early, they came ready to cheer, and it was just you could tell even before the match started with starting lineup introductions when the Huskers came out the court that they were ready to explode and really kind of excited to excited for the atmosphere. I mean, some people paid two hundred dollars to stand the whole match, so they were excited to be there and they were going to get their money's worth. 
you know, you hear sometimes and, and we'll hear it. We, we've heard it from guests on our show who talk to us a little bit off the air before we go on about what the home court advantage in the Devaney Center is really like. Um, there are people who, who have followed this program for a long time that will still tell you that they're they wish that the program never moved to the Devaney Center from the Coliseum because the Coliseum was more intimate. It was louder. It was a different kind of crowd. Um, and, and I think there, those people have some points sometimes that the Devaney Center is not always the loudest, most raucous crowd. It doesn't have, you know, a consolidated student section that's right on top of the court, given the opposing team's grief. But just watching that match at home, there were points where it got as loud in the Devaney Center as, as any other venue Nebraska would, would have ever played in. And so the crowd really brought their A game. So let's talk about the match itself. Lincoln, when I look back at this match for, you know, it, it was an ugly match. It was a, a match that you could tell two great defensive teams were playing in. That's what the, that's what the numbers look like. Um, to me, this is going to be the match where we, we put beyond a shadow of a doubt that the, the biggest thing that Nebraska has going for it this year is its toughness. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you could always say that about other Nebraska teams in the past. Yes, they're young. Yes, they're incredibly athletic, but you do not come back from what that team experienced or what Wisconsin imposed on them in game two, unless you have no fear, you have supreme belief in yourself and your teammates, and you are incredibly tough. That's what I took away from this match. Yeah, and have short memories, too. I mean, they were moving on to the next rally, regardless of what happened the previous one, whether it was a Wisconsin block or a big kill from the Badgers. So they really, it was just the focus and willing to fight, point in, point out. I mean, it was more than three a three hour long match too, and be able to keep that high concentration level uh, is just an impressive feat mentally to do. I mean, yes, they're very physically gifted, but I think that, like you said, the, the difference between this team and other previous iterations that we've seen recently of Nebraska is just the mental toughness and ability to fight through adversity. And I mean, sometimes it's of their own doing and, and just making poor decisions every now and then, but uh, mm-hmm. the ability to bounce back from that is really impressive. What I thought was interesting about this, and, and we can we can go through kind of like the the pace of the match as it went along, was Nebraska started really well. Um, they they took game one from Wisconsin. They they ran out to an early lead with some great serving by Laney Choboy. But then Wisconsin made their adjustments. They kind of flipped the script a little bit on Nebraska in game, uh, certainly in game two, where Wisconsin put up, and I don't know if this is a record that like we, we could track down. Wisconsin had 12 blocks in game two that means half of their points in game two came from blocks uh and they won the set in in dominating fashion and so at that point they're tied one one and you're you realize that nebraska is in some trouble that that maybe the best defensive team in the country if it's not nebraska then it's probably wisconsin has, has figured out what nebraska is trying to do um wisconsin even though they didn't record an ace in this match which blows my mind in 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 a five set match they served really tough. They they had Nebraska in, in a little bit of a fit in their passing. They were pulling Bergen Riley off the net, and they were making Nebraska's offense slower than they wanted to be and more predictable than they wanted to be. And they were just camping out on uh, Nebraska's hitters in game two. And Lincoln, nobody was immune to it. I mean, Harper Murray was getting blocked. Merritt Beeson was getting blocked. Nebraska's middles were getting blocked. And w- when, you, when you get to the end or maybe even the midpoint of game two, are you thinking – you know, okay, Wisconsin has figured out what they came here to do tonight. 
Yeah, you you had flashbacks to I mean really that 2021 national championship match. I think Wisconsin Wisconsin put up 24 blocks and that and just was such a physical force. And they have several. I mean a lot of the same players are back from that uh, iteration. There's a little bit of turnover, but I mean you had the six foot nine Anna Smirk and Devin Robinson. Uh, it just uh, they have such an imposing physicality on uh, at the mm-hmm. net. Uh, that you took them a while to catch up. That's when Nebraska came out. They were quick. They were fast that first set, and that's what really allowed them to build up that early lead. And that, and I think they went a six-zero run and really kind of separated themselves uh, in that first set. And then I think Wisconsin adapted to that quickness. Um, but like you said, everyone had Nebraska was hit negative, and it was and they had twelve kills, sixteen errors that once and. A lot of those errors came later in the set, too, as mm-hmm. Nebraska was trying to figure out how, what do we do against this block, and they would try to go high hands and hit over the block and out of bounds. So the block didn't get credit for all of them, but they were the cause of yeah. almost all of Nebraska's hitting errors. Yeah, let, let's talk just a little bit about Wisconsin's blocking because it carried over into game three, which Wisconsin won as well, to to take a two sets to one lead. It's not just the block that uh, scores points that, that, that is effective if you're a good defensive team. Um, it's how you set up your defense around that. So with, when Wisconsin was camped out on Nebraska's hitters, they put you know two big blockers in front. But then at Nebraska, you, you would see, would almost try to be a little too precise, a little too perfect. They knew they couldn't go through the block, and they really weren't trying early on in going off of Wisconsin's block, not like they would later in the match. But, you know, Allie Batenhorst and Harper Murray – we're, we're trying to almost hit the ball around Wisconsin's block. They were trying to hit sharp cross or they were trying to go deep to the corner or they were trying to go high hands and missing. And they just, they just were missing. Yeah. And some of these, these shots looked bad. Like they were sailing into the Nebraska's bench or they were, it was not close. They weren't making the, the officials make decisions. And so at that point you realize, okay, not only is what Wisconsin doing working physically at the net, but they're in Nebraska's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nebraska is unsure of itself and and you are not used to seeing the Huskers in a, in a place like that. Yeah. And that's the thing too. I mean, you mentioned the, wasn't just a block for points, but they got their hands on a lot. And what, who I was really impressed with was a uh, or, or Orzel. Yeah. Uh, really. I mean, she only had credit for 18 digs, but she also not would get the second touches. So she didn't get credit for a dig, but would keep the ball alive by, they, the ball would get, come off the block, get redirected, and she would keep it mm-hmm. alive and send it back over to Nebraska. And Nebraska just really struggled. Even they had a number of free balls and just out of system attacks from Wisconsin and failed to capitalize because that block was so dominant. It slowed down the Nebraska attack. But uh, Orzel, former outside hitter, converted to mm-hmm. a libero this year. Really, I felt controlled the match too and frustrated. I mean, she, I they had a good Nebraska, Wisconsin had a good uh, scouting report on Wisconsin. She set up exact position to get a lot of digs and where Nebraska wanted to hit the ball. Yeah, Nebraska's fans are used to seeing outstanding libero play, and they saw it again from from Lexi Rodriguez on Saturday night. But Julia Orzel for Wisconsin played one of the better matches I've ever seen in opposing libero play uh, against Nebraska. It, on, I don't know how many of these eighteen digs she was laying out for, but it seemed like every single one. You know, she was rescuing points and keeping it alive. I think as a team, Nebraska or Wisconsin played about as good a defensive matchup against Nebraska as I've seen. And and you kind of now, if you're a Nebraska fan, you see how the other half lives when your team um, is is struggling to put a ball down against not just a great block, but a great floor defense. 
and you you have shots that will go down against the Michigans or the Ohio States of the world that Wisconsin's just keeping up off the floor and finding a way to transition them into kills. This is what Nebraska does to other teams. And mm-hmm. so you had two outs, maybe the two best defensive teams in the country were facing each other on uh, on Saturday night. And that led to a, a three hour match with a lot of long rallies and, and very little margin for error on both sides. Yeah, and I think the defensive numbers also show up in the offensive numbers, too. I mean, Nebraska had 193 attacks, and that's just to 157 attacks from Wisconsin. I mean, part of that comes with the blocks, but just not even just it was just projecting the attacks and putting, keeping the ball on Nebraska's side of the net, too. So Nebraska was on offense for a lot of the match, too, and that just it gives a credit to, to uh, what Wisconsin was doing. So just outstanding. So that takes us through, I mean, Nebraska, to me, one of the turning points happened that late set three. Uh, Nebraska's mm-hmm. down by a pretty sizable margin. Um, I mean, they're down 20 to 12. And you're thinking, oh, Nebraska's in trouble, too. But they, they figure something out there, too. I think they their passing tightens up a little bit. They're able to get their middles more involved. But to me, one of the, the I mean, the, the referees were, they were, had an inconsistent night. We'll, just, we'll, we'll call mm-hmm. it that. But with the throws that they were where they were making, I think what really set uh, what set Wisconsin off was Harper Murray had an out of system set to the to I think Batenhorst on the pin mm-hmm. that Wisconsin the entire bench came off uh, and they were incessant that it was uh, a, a double contact that wasn't called Nebraska ended up winning the point on Merritt Beeson's kill and uh, eventually a yellow card came out. I couldn't tell if it was for Izzy Ashburn or if it was for Kelly Sheffield, but I think it was for Sheffield. Okay. I mean, it, it was to someone, I mean, the, the up, up official had it in his hand. He was ready to show it and they kept talking to him. And why was that called? Why was that not called? Um, but that really, that, that was a turning point because that got the crowd back involved in it. And mm-hmm. like we said in the first set, that was a big difference. Nebraska feeds off the crowd energy. So, I mean, what, what did you feel changed in the third set? End of the third set, to yeah. Nebraska back into it. So, so this is a really hard question, I think, to answer. I've, I've been trying to answer that question in my mind as, ever since the match got over. And I think it's a really hard thing to figure out in volleyball because the, the match, the sets start over. As soon as you have a set over, everyone gets a, to a chance to go back to the bench and sit down and you, you start from zero, zero again. And so, you know, the, the reset button gets pressed at the end of every set. And that's one of the great things and one of the frustrating things about volleyball is you can play really well for a 10-minute stretch in, in a basketball game and build a 15-point lead that the other team has to come back from. But you just have to keep winning these 10, 20-minute segments over and over again in volleyball. And so for as great as Wisconsin looked in games two and three, you know, Nebraska got to, to gather its bearings you know, in between games three and four and say, okay, hey, they still have to win one more set on us. And maybe some of the things that Wisconsin was doing so well in two and three, Nebraska was finally able to to make some adjustments against. You saw, yeah, and you saw a little bit of it in game three. I mean, after Wisconsin went for 12 blocks in the second, they only had two in the uh, in the third set, too. So, I mean, I think Nebraska still had nine hitting errors, which was high. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I think they, they started to figure out a little bit, not whether it started to click towards the end of it, too, because Merritt Beeson had uh, a big tool block. Uh, and I mean, Bain Horse had another kill there late. And, and the other, the other point too, I think they started serving a little tougher. Beeson got an mm-hmm. ace to make it 23 20. I'm like, okay, they figured it out. And then maybe that got Wisconsin's passing a little bit off kilter as well. Yeah. Too, so, 
Nebraska definitely stepped up their service pressure as the match went on. And for, you know, we've been complaining about service errors for um, the last month on this, uh, on this show to have what Nebraska and Wisconsin both had 12 service errors in the match. I believe Nebraska had, Nebraska had 11. Nebraska had 11. And in a five set match, that's actually not unreasonable. Yeah. I don't think if you have two a set, that's probably okay. <laughs> Especially where they were. I mean, they were averaging more than three, I think three, four, three point four per set. I mean, to be just over two is as progress. Mm-hmm. So let's get into game four right now. Nebraska was looking pretty good up, um, 17 14 in game four before Wisconsin put the hammer down. And at least in my view, as I was watching it, thought, I thought it, they were ending the match at this point. Mm-hmm. Wisconsin goes on a seven one run. They go up 21 18 in game four. They're four away from a win and it just, Feels like, okay, Wisconsin's the better team tonight. They were imposed their will in games two and three. Now they've come up with a big comeback in game four, but Nebraska, not done, gets up off the match with a 3 0 run. Yeah, Lincoln, go ahead. Yeah, I say, I mean, they called the timeout. They, I don't know if they drew up this play, but first play out of that timeout, uh, Riley has a nice little, it's almost like a deke dump, or she it was a two handed setter dump. It wasn't a force, yeah. you know, force it with their left hand, but it was kind of completely froze a Wisconsin defense. Uh, and then Nebraska got a big break, uh, with a poor pass. I mean, Kennedy Orr goes back to serve, uh, and they get, uh, MJ Hamill gets called for a back row attack because this, the mm-hmm. pass was too close and Becca Alec was able to get a hand on it. And then Kennedy Orr delivers an ace and that really, uh, that tied it up 21, 21. And I think stemmed the tide a little bit there too. Yeah. That, that attack by Bergen Riley was very gutsy. You see Nebraska, I think, do this out of timeout sometimes where it will be a called play. Um, because she was not really tight to the net, I don't think. And I, I, I don't even know if she was in the back row. And so she couldn't attack above the plane of the net. Maybe that's why it looked like it did. But I think it kind of tells you all you need to know about how good defensively Wisconsin is. That Bergen Riley, Nebraska setter, was actually the one with the highest hitting percentage on the team. And she only hit 286. So uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't like one of those situations where a setter will get four kills and six swings with no errors. Like they made, they made Bergen Riley work for hers as well. But that gets us to 21-21. Uh, teams trade uh, side outs before Tammy Thomas Alara gets a kill to give Wisconsin match point up 24-23. So this is Wisconsin's one chance to win the match. But Harper Murray, who had been absent for about an hour in this match, hadn't had a kill since late game two, or maybe it's even early in game two, uh, comes in and, and gets a kill to save the match point. It's 24-24. Um, and then as would become a recurring theme late in this match, uh, Wisconsin gets called for a net violation to give Nebraska a 25-24 lead. And then Harper Murray goes back to the service line, lands a really good serve that Wisconsin ends up overpassing. Becca Alec tips it straight down, and we've got game five. And and in about a three-minute stretch in real time, it went from Nebraska looking like this match was over to electricity just zapping its way around the Devaney Center to go to game five. Yeah, I mean, it, it was Nebraska was down twenty three twenty one. I I had started to write up my final score tweet. Wisconsin continues their dominance over. I mean, mm-hmm. it, to me, it just it was back to back airs. Beeson got blocked. Murray hit it long. The two uh, hitting airs had problems that just popped up again too. And it, to me, it, it felt like Wisconsin, like you said, had this wrapped up. They were about ready to finish it off. Is what they do. They just kind of rise to the occasion, use their experience, but. This is a different Nebraska team, and they really kind of they rose to the occasion and and got a couple. Um, they made they made plays, and again, it came down to that serving. Uh, and and to me, to go to Murray in that situation, it was. I mean, that was first. A, to me, it looked like Bergen had her choice of hitters. She went to Murray at the left pin, 
Uh, and, and if this is the point I'm thinking about, Harper Murray ended up getting making the pass on that play too. Like she received the serve, passed it up to Riley, and Riley went right back to her. Um, mm-hmm. So like that adds just another layer of difficulty from a player that was that was struggling mightily uh, in this match up to that point. Yeah, and that just I just said Devaney Center's rocking again. The crowd's into it. You feel all fortunate. I mean, you feel like Nebraska stole that set a little bit or got fortunate to win that, but uh, the crowd is energized again. They're pumped. Uh, they're head to five, and anything can happen in five. And really, anything did happen because everything happened to, in game five. Compared to the first four sets, this was a completely different match. That I mean, offensive problems were gone. It was just efficient. Everyone's fighting yeah. out. So it was just almost like a completely different match that we saw in that fifth. This game. is why this is kind of goes back to my earlier point about volleyball has so many games within the game, and it's hard to pinpoint like. Okay, what did Nebraska do? Or um, what was the turning point? What, where did Nebraska finally start to get momentum back on its side? Because we come out in game five and a Nebraska team that had hit 031 over games two, three, and four suddenly can't miss. And it turns into the, um, the Merritt Beeson Harper Murray show in game five. And even despite that, Lincoln, Wisconsin had grabbed and then pretty much held on for most of game five, a two point lead. I mean, this was like yeah. four, two. 8-6 at the changeover, 10-8, and finally Nebraska trailed 12-10 in Game 5 before, you know, guess who? Allie Batenhorst, who had a pretty solid match, I thought. You know, I, yes. I, I've you, you, t- keep a look, you take a look at her hitting percentages all year long. They're not where you want to be for your L2, but, you know, she had a pretty solid match, I thought. She gets a kill to draw within 12-11, and then Harper Murray takes over with the biggest uh, redemption story of the night. Uh, I think I, John Cook said after the match that Harper Murray got a chewing out after yeah. game four. And I don't know who that chewing out came from, if that came from him or, or one of the assistants or one of her teammates. Did, did you get more on that? No, he just said chewing out. But imagine uh, if it came from Jordan Larson, maybe it came from Jordan Larson. The, uh, that'll uh, perk a person up. But I, I don't know who, uh, who like uh, who the people are on the bench yeah. who were who the one to chew people. Out. I mean, I imagine it came from Cook or, uh, Jalen or somebody kind of yeah. uh, lit a fire under her, and she really responded there too. Murray but, was hitting negative going into game five, and she yeah. finishes the fifth set with seven of Nebraska's 13 kills. Um, Huskers hit 545 in game five, and after um, Batenhorst's kill drew Nebraska within 12-11, we get the first of three straight Harper-Murray kills to get Nebraska to 14-12 to with two match points. Yeah, she didn't shy away from that. Like you said, she, had, she just had seven kills entering the uh the fifth set and then match that total she had 10 airs on 35 swings before that and she went seven kills on nine attacks she only needed nine attacks to rack those up in the fifth set so she was just also just efficient uh and really really i don't know if she changed much but she kind of rose to the occasion and uh had those three straight kills i mean one just straight i think the most impressive one uh it was slightly out of system and it was a by it was a it was a bump pass set Mm-hmm. Her it was more inside. She Hold did her inside. A, she did a running one legged jump and just split the Wisconsin block. And it was it was very impressive, very athletic, and just a very heady play to make. There were there were some brave brave swings by Harper Murray in Game Five, and we we t- I talked about how my takeaway from this match was toughness. Um, there's no bigger example of that uh, on Nebraska in this match than than Harper Murray, who shook off you know Wisconsin's block, her own struggles to just come out firing in game five. Uh, that that was a play, you know, that, that stuck out to me. 
I don't, I can't tell you how many times I see that when an out of system set actually pulls an, in, a, an outside hitter inside the court, pulls them away from the pin. It's like the defense doesn't really know what to do. It always mm-hmm. makes me nervous when I see, you know, um, an opposing player do it on Nebraska because then you have the whole court to work with. You've basically made her a middle blocker in where they're going to attack from and, and you can kind of hit it anywhere you want. So she gets that kill. Um, Wisconsin again called for two net violations in that stretch, one from Devin Robinson and one from poor Caroline Crawford, who ends up, I, mean, I don't know if she slept well last night, but I can see why if she didn't, um, that gets Nebraska to 14, 12, uh, in the fifth, um, Sarah Franklin, who really, really impressed me for Wisconsin, uh, on Saturday, Lincoln gets uh, a kill, um, to, to make it 14, 13. And then on match point, Nebraska goes right back to Murray, um, for a first ball side out, Murray, airmails the shot hits it well long but was it bergen riley is is the story gone that riley was the one who saw wisconsin commit the net violation during the play and and told the bench to challenge it yes i've watched this many times i mean from my perch i couldn't tell who said it but you look you look at like they kind of huddled and like murray was she's turned around and and she's so they knew she didn't touch it and you could see the net just wobbling a little bit and bergen's like look at that like we need to challenge that. She's pointing to the pointing to cook. And I think uh, Kelly Hunter also encouraged him. Like it's, it's 14, 14 at that you get an extra challenge in the fifth set. So mm-hmm. there's no better time to use it. And then uh, they go look at it and you, you watch the replay. It is fairly obvious. Yeah. It's very clear. So, I mean, she, uh, Caroline Crawford comes down and she, as she's kind of turning to watch the ball, her hip, just grazes, I mean, I graze it, but it made contact with the net enough to, to shake it. And it's, I think, fir- the, I think the technical volleyball term is it's a boop. She booped the net. Booped. Yeah. 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 So it's a, it's clear and it's a very quick review for, our, for how reviews typically go. Um, and you could, you could tell the reaction in the stadium because we could see the, I don't know how loud these referees are talking to the bench. There's some, but, there's some leaks that happen, right? Yeah. Whenever the, the refs like are talking to the bench after they make a decision on a review, like word spreads like wildfire from the first row around the stadium. And you could hear the fans start to cheer. You, yeah, you could see there, there's crowds behind the bench, but as the officials telling, telling the, uh, tell the scorekeepers what the, what the result of the replay is, you could see them start, they're shaking their hands. They're jumping up and down. And you can see the players are all looking at this and the cook kind of that. And then uh, they announce the players overturned yeah. point Nebraska match Nebraska. And then just bedlam happens and pandemonium and the, the players all run kind of that, that run and hug each other. Uh, John, cook I want to, I want to get into that a little, a little bit. So it's, it's sort of an anticlimactic way to, to win the match, but you know, it's, the announcement coming over the loudspeaker almost added to the expense or to the suspense. And I have never seen a post-match celebration on the Devaney center court. Like what we saw on, uh, on Saturday night, John cook, who usually keeps things together pretty well and is, you know, fairly stoic. He's seen everything. He's out there smiling with students. I've never seen that. He's soaking it all in on the court. Like they would have lifted him up off the court and carried them off. You know, if, if they had had a mind to, and him wearing that silly little red cowboy hat that all of the students were wearing. I'm like, who yeah. is this guy? I've never seen this guy like this before. And we should ask Lauren about this here in a, in a little bit. But um, it's just it felt like a different kind of win. Because how many times has Nebraska actually decided underdog on their own home floor? And I think that's what you would have to consider what they were on Saturday night. 
sure. and and just the weight of the losing streak to Wisconsin and the relief. It was like a giant dam of positive emotions bursting at once. Yeah, and I don't know whether it also just Nebraska felt. For, I mean, Nebraska had to feel fortunate to win that because they got outplayed for long stretches of that, but really made the plays down late. Uh, and I think too the uh, the student section they had they had to get security out there because the student section they wanted to rush the court, and I think. That's the first time I've maybe ever seen a. Uh, that's the one thing about the good thing about the student section being divided is that uh, you had enough security out there to prevent the students from going onto the court and kind of. Uh, and then Cook Cook went over to them and started jumping, grabbed the hat, and was jumping and celebrating. That was pretty cool to see. But like you said, he was uh, he was. Great. That doesn't happen. That is, I've never no. seen that happen before. No, I don't think he he never he just does his TV interview and then walks to the locker room and then does his radio interview eventually. So yeah, he was he was enjoying the moment too, and the the players were as well too. And uh, you could just see from the smiles and hugs that they were that they meant a lot to them too. This just wasn't it wasn't mm-hmm. this wasn't match ten as they like they said a bunch of yeah. times uh, leading up to this that this one had a little extra juice in it. And I don't I mean a lot of these players weren't around for almost all of those ten straight losses, but uh, mm-hmm. to be able to to be able to do that for the young group to be able to. Uh, get this notch in their belt. It's a, it's a good accomplishment they should be proud of. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. I want to get through uh, or get into some of the individual performances from this match. Uh, First of all, Nebraska now 19-0. Do I have that right? Correct. Um, They are one of two undefeated teams left in the country, assuming the Citadel handled their business. They did. Go, they, go Bulldogs. Did. Go Bulldogs. Nebraska is going to be the new number one team in the country. When the poll comes out late uh, Monday morning, we'll see if they have any conference honors as well. And if anyone deserves it for Nebraska, we have hardly mentioned her name yet in the first half hour of this podcast. But Merritt Beeson showed you why she, I think, was named a captain before ever playing a match at Nebraska. Led Nebraska with 21 kills on 52 swings on Saturday night. I think that means she has 42 kills career against Wisconsin in two matches because I think she had 21 in uh, in Florida's win over them last year. But Beeson, even though she started slow, she just kept piling up the kills and they went to her on some crazy sets, I thought. Like very rarely do I see Nebraska as a program over the years set what's, what's called a D ball, um, which is setting the ball to the right side player in the back row. If Nebraska sets back row, it's usually that pipe, that big, that quick middle from the back row. And they set Harper Murray and, and Merritt Beeson on that too. But you can tell how much Nebraska values Merritt Beeson as an attacker when they start setting D balls to her, um, mm-hmm. including one where like it felt like she got kind of an awkward running start and still slammed a kill off the top of the Wisconsin block um, in, I want to say that was game four. Is either late game four or late game five. Um, Merritt Beeson, 21 kills, can get him from anywhere on the floor and yeah. and... If you listen to her talk after the match, 
you know, she was still measured. She was still calm. And I think, you know, Nebraska made a really wise choice into who they were going to name one of the captains this year. I think my favorite merit basin kill came as a, a very poor pass. I, I forget it wasn't, it wasn't, didn't come from Riley, but it was a bump pass that pushed her outside of the pin and very tight. Somehow she found an angle and, and hit it almost parallel with the net, but it ricocheted off the uh, Wisconsin block and then just landed within the first couple of feet uh, on the net too. So she was just, I mean, you talk a lot about, I mean, yes, she does. She does do great things on the court too, but it's her leadership. It's her, demeanor it's her i think it's her belief in her teammates too to mm-hmm. to put to, to put them in the right position to succeed too and i mean she's a six rotation opposite too you don't see many of those and her i mean she had some big serves uh and also had, and, and had some big uh big passes too as well uh harper murray as we mentioned before had seven kills coming into game five had seven more in game five to finish with 14 kills and 15 digs i don't know if that's a career high for her but that mm-hmm. she they had to they had to rely on her defensively as well. And she also had 45. She was served at 45 times and did not. I mean, like we said, Wisconsin didn't record an ace. So she was perfect. I mean, didn't have didn't even give mm-hmm. him any points on her 45 uh, serve received as well, too. She was the main target. She got almost half of Wisconsin serves were directed at Harper Murray. Yeah, I think that's a good game plan. If you're Wisconsin, this match showed me too. you know what a good coach Kelly Sheffield was. Wisconsin knew what they were doing. Um, they, they served Nebraska really tough. It stuns me that they didn't get an ace in this match because Wisconsin, I think, had been averaging almost like maybe an ace and a half per set. Um, and if they get two more of those at the right spot in the match, then, then this is matches over in four. And we're talking about a completely different, uh, completely different Big Ten race. Uh, Allie Batenhorst, 13 kills. So really impressive. Uh, and I think Nebraska is going to need her for the rest of the year. Um, from what we see, just Lindsey Krause was on crutches again. Uh, we haven't even talked about this, I don't think. Um, oh, no. Lindsey Krause turned her ankle in practice on Tuesday, the day before yeah, Nebraska played Northwestern. Um, she's been on crutches all week. Um, she was on crutches for the Wisconsin match and the Northwestern match. Uh, I've talked to some people. It is tough to see her coming back, I think, anytime soon. We could be looking at a few weeks, a month, maybe, without Lindsey Krause um, at worst case scenario, you know, this is something that keeps you out for the rest of the year. So we are looking at an extended period of time with um, with Allie Batenhorst as the L2 and your heart just breaks for Lindsey Krause because she was really putting it together um, before this injury. And and I know she would have loved to play in this match on Saturday, but it, it was Beeson. It was Murray. It was Batenhorst who carried the Husker offense. Um, we haven't talked much about Bergen Riley yet. I did not think this was Bergen Riley's strongest match, at least through the first three sets. Uh, she was just missing some players. Um, she would set, you know, there was a miscommunication. She was missing her middles. She was trying to force the middle, I think, a little bit too much at times. But then she comes back and sets a game five that was that was really masterful. Um, she put Harper Murray and Merritt Beeson in great positions. She finishes the night with 50 assists and 17 more digs on her own to um, make up three Huskers who had double-digit digs. Uh, no, excuse me, four, because Harper Murray had 15. But Lexi Rodriguez, 17 digs, just another outstanding night from her. And then Lainey Choboy, who had kind of been on a milk carton for the last couple of weeks, it feels like Lincoln, had 11 digs, yeah. but really fired everyone up with her serving. And that's where you knew she was going to have to step up because mm-hmm. Choboy had been sort of replaced at the serving line by Krause when they let Krause serve. Well, she comes in to serve for Allie Batenhorst and, and really takes over the match at times with her serving. Yeah, she had she was serving during that key run, that six oh run during the first set. She was serving that key run 
uh, in the in the fourth set that kind of gave Nebraska an early advantage too. And she was serving when Harper Murray went on her three zero run uh, in the in the fifth set too. So she was really back there, served tough. Uh, she only uh, she didn't record any aces, but she served twenty three times with only one air, and that air came fairly early in the match. Uh, so she kept the ball in play and really made uh, Wisconsin work for that too. So that was really, I mean, really significant too. Uh, just looking at a couple of the other, the middle blockers, like I said, they had an inconsistent night, but to me, I think Andy Jackson really set the tone of the match too. Just Wisconsin didn't know what to do with her speed and her athleticism. She finished with eight kills, um, uncharacteristically low 174 hitting for her. Becca Alec had seven kills, 182. So a couple airs really, uh, suppress the hitting percentage of the middles, but they they came through when needed. And I think that's where Wisconsin had the most trouble dealing with Nebraska's offenses when they were able to get, they couldn't handle the speed and, and uh, quickness of Nebraska's middle attack. It looked like the middles really got going in game one when Nebraska's passing was on point. Bergen Riley could run things pretty quickly. And it seems like Jackson and, and Alec had strong opening sets. It was when Wisconsin started to increase their service pressure in game two and three that, that took the middles out of it because Bergen Riley wasn't tight to the net in the middle where she could make those sets to the middles. And she tried to force a couple and they just weren't going down. It led to some transition uh, offense for Wisconsin. But um, I want to talk just real quickly about, I mentioned her earlier, Sarah Franklin from Wisconsin, um, their leading attacker was outstanding on Saturday, had 17 kills and, and really kind of showed off, the the depth of her attacking, she was hitting all kinds of different shots. She was hitting that thumb down shot where it, it ends up being a sharp cross court, barely crossing the net. It's almost impossible to defend if you hit it well because it goes inside the block and away from the uh, from the line defender. Um, she also one thing that I I never really noticed about her. She does a really good until Saturday. She does a great job of hitting the ball at the top of her jump. And mm-hmm. so it's not always the biggest arm sw- swing, but she hits the ball with a really quick snap of the wrist. And that allows her to hit at the full extension of her. I think she's six foot four. So she hits the ball really high and she kept hitting this shot that Nebraska just had no idea what to do with where it would go over the block to the deep cross corner. So not, not down the line, but, but deep cross court. And there's only one defender over there and she was hitting it past. I think it was usually Merritt Beeson in the points that come to my memory. Yeah. And, and just burying a shot that was perfectly placed. Michaela Fecky, I would remember, got really good at hitting this shot late in her career. And it's so frustrating as a as a defense where you know that this player is getting the ball and they're either going around or off or past your block. And there's really not a lot you can do. She had some rough moments in game five. I think it was, a, it was an Ali Batenhorst shot that Franklin probably should have done better to dig. And it went off her arms and yeah. out of bounds that that gave Nebraska the lead in game five. But I mean, all in all, like Sarah yeah. Franklin was outstanding uh, for Wisconsin on Saturday. That's one thing she struggled with was when it was the Nebraska's left side, they kind of hit to the middle of the donut and she tried to get that. And she, a lot of times she popped it up and it went over her, the, the right back. And uh, she, Nebraska took advantage of that and, and their kind of campfire defense too. The one shot that sticks out to me from Sarah Franklin too, was I think in the first set, where uh, it was out of system, but, but she just tried, she just did a little roll shot and hit it directly at Merritt Beeson. And it just kind of, it, I don't know if it was a change up or different pace, but it caught Beeson off off guard and she kind of fell backwards and went for a kill too off of just completely out of system play too. So she's, I mean, I think she's, she's always been a great power player. I mean, she has a lot of mm-hmm. power 
and a lot of strength, but I think she's added, like you said, a little bit of skill, a little bit of cunning uh, to what she's, what she can do with it and kind of just refined her overall technique that really makes her a dangerous and one of the better hitters in the conference and maybe in the nation as well, too. Um, also for Wisconsin, Devin Robinson, who had missed several of their recent matches with an injury, came back. She had 10 kills. Tammy Thomas Alara, the Northwestern transfer, also had 10 kills for Wisconsin. But really, that was it. It was a it was a pin heavy offense. I, I thought that Anna Smreck was going to get more involved in this match offensively. And Wisconsin six foot nine player who sometimes plays middle and sometimes plays opposite. Smreck only had six kills, three errors, uh, hit one thirty six. So she really was a non-factor offensively. Um, she did have six blocks. Wisconsin's middles, Carter Booth and Caroline Crawford, were both outstanding with nine blocks. But it's going to, you know, you're going to watch that tape and you're going to see Caroline Crawford being in the net three or four times in this match and really just shake your head. You know, I remember watching the replay of of match point where Crawford is clearly in the net. And my first thought was that the officials were going to let it go because that used to be a lot more discretionary. Officials would, if they feel like you bumping the net didn't really affect the outcome of the play then they would let it go. But I feel like now with everything on replay and everything on camera, everyone can see whether you, you know, whether you call it or not, you're kind of forced to call it very strictly if you're an official and, and Crawford being the net in the net again, uh, uh, ends the match. So Huskers win it in five, 15, 13 in the fifth, they're going to be the new number one ranked team in the country. I think Lincoln, um, that this match, unless Nebraska falls apart down the stretch and loses four, maybe five, uh, matches the rest of the way has pretty much clinched Nebraska as a top four seed when it comes to the NCAA tournament. Nobody else has a resume that can boast a road win at Stanford and a home win over Wisconsin on it. And and I feel like Nebraska now is just kind of counting. The, the, the suspense left before the postseason is whether Nebraska is going to win the Big Ten title or not. And they still have to go out to Madison and play um, on Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, and I think Nebraska definitely played a, I mean, this, this is the They've played 10 Big Ten matches, and I feel like they're, it's a little more front-heavy, too. I mean, they do have to go to at Penn State uh, and at Wisconsin and at Minnesota to end, but I think the other seven matches should be fairly... Uh, they haven't played Iowa yet. They haven't played Rutgers played, yet. They haven't played Maryland yet, and that's coming this weekend. So it does feel, yeah, like the like the schedule lets up a little yes. bit. But so uh, the one the one kind of looming thing, I mean, there was a lot of hype coming into this match, and... uh People may have even called it the game of the century. I don't know who would have been crazy enough to do that, but uh, it looks good a on a t-shirt. Of, looks great on a t-shirt. It looks great on a headline. Just kind of makes for a great lead-in. Um, but I mean, it. I think you, you got two heavyweights that went all fifteen rounds too. So, it, but you leave the kind of match. I don't know if it wasn't the most beautiful game, but it was two very skilled teams, two of the best teams in college volleyball this 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 season. Was it, I mean, so we'll, we'll just ask the question, was this, was this one of the greatest matches in Nebraska volleyball history? I, I would be, you could convince me that it was in the top five regular season matches in, in Nebraska history, at least that I have seen. And, and you know, that goes back about 20 years. The, the postseason matches that Nebraska has been involved in sort of I, I put in a different class because it means if you lose your, your season is over. And if Nebraska had lost on Saturday, there's, there's still a whole lot for them to play for. So like the, the 08 regional final at Washington, any of the final four matches against Stanford and Penn state, those to me are, mm-hmm. are, are on a, yeah. another plane when you're talking about the greatest matches ever. I throw in the but, 21 uh, regional final at Texas as well too. Yep. 
That's right. The way where Nebraska upsets them in four to, to go to the final four. And we should, you know, if we do this in the off season, we could sit there and go through our top five matches that we've seen in, in Husker history. Um, you know, the, the 1996 regional final against Penn state, which I think I, I did a story when they were moving out of the Coliseum and in, into Devaney on what the greatest matches in Coliseum history were. And everyone kind of said, hands down the 96 regional mm-hmm. final against Penn state, which is actually on YouTube. You can go watch Fiona Nepo and Megan Corver and Lisa Reitzma playing against some of the great players in Penn state history. So you have matches like that. Yeah. That's not to take anything away from, from this match, which was outstanding. It was the first one versus two undefeated matchups. since I think the, the 1998 NCAA championship match. It was the latest one since then. Yes. It was also with the second one versus two match in Devaney center history. Um, and the first one, that Nebraska 19 won. Stanford, right? Because Stanford won that, that first one a few years ago. And, you know, it had an energy um, that very few matches in the Devaney center had. It reminds yeah. me of, of, of a couple of Penn state matches. I feel like that, that I covered there where Penn Nebraska would squeak out two close sets. Penn state would win kind of two decisive sets. And then it was anything goes in game five and, and Nebraska somehow pulls it out. This felt a lot like one of those. Yeah. Maybe just framing it in Nebraska is maybe a little too narrow. I think it was one of the more significant regular season college volleyball games because I think the sport is at an inflection point this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're seeing attendance records everywhere. Yeah, this uh, is a and, really good point. And, and, and I think the anticipation too, I mean, people pointed this match when the schedules came out in early summer that hey, this could be for the Big Ten title. And then for both teams to live up to that, to come into this undefeated, added to this, the anticipation, and to have it go five, I think really made it a special that these were two evenly matched teams. So I think that it, the significance of it is not, I mean, it doesn't match a postseason match or doesn't match a, something where you, you can clinch mm-hmm. a conference crown. But I think as far as a regular season match, it's one of the more, I, I, I don't know if it's significant or important or noteworthy matches that Nebraska's played in, just because I'm, I, we were recording Sunday afternoons. So we have not yet seen the BTN numbers yet, too, but I'm going to be very interested to see what kind of audience that this match got and kind of Big Ten matches get 400,000. I think that was the record previously for last mm-hmm. year's uh, Black Friday Wisconsin-Nebraska match. I wouldn't be surprised if they blow that out of the water. I mean, a million, you get a million viewers, that's getting like Final Four territory. Mm-hmm. It might be a little high, but it it could be, it could be up there. I, I'll say this uh, about that. And I think you, you're kind of alluding to it. I'm, I'm just going to go one step farther. If you're a fan of the sport of women's college volleyball and you're looking for this sport to continue to grow and you've seen things like the Memorial Stadium match and all of these attendance records being set around the country and you know the national championship match this year is being moved the Sunday so it can be played on ABC and get a national, you know, broadcast television audience. If you're one of those fans, you needed Nebraska and Wisconsin to live up to the hype on Saturday. You mm-hmm. need the sport to grow, to gain new fans, to reduce enthusiasm for it around the country. Needs great matches on national TV played between power programs. And Nebraska Wisconsin lived up to every bit of the hype. And so that's taking a national look at what this match could mean in in its place in the sport. You look around locally here too. You see these, you know, the, the videos popped up on YouTube from the crowd watching it in the cube down in the rail yard oh, yeah. and reacting on match point. You had, you know, as you said, Lincoln, the fans were lining up starting at 11 o'clock Saturday morning to get into Devaney Center. 
Like, I, mean, I just, saw the echoes of... around this city just continue to go because of a match like this. They were lighting off fireworks up oh, here yeah. in East Lincoln. <laughs> I saw a picture of uh, some farmer had a uh, an iPad in their grain cart. They were watching this match too. So it's not just in the city. It's permanent. Man, that that probably warmed John Cook's heart and helped spend ten minutes talking about it on his radio show. But I mean, it just. It, it permeates the culture. And I think it's reached a thing where that was the thing to do. I mean, if you're paying more than $200 for a Santa room only ticket. And like, I, I think everyone who paid that, I think I would say they got their money's worth. I would feel like they would come leaving that leaving Devania on Saturday night too. They would feel comfortable with that statement. Everybody in your crew identifies as either big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. So that's Lincoln and I's takes on the match. It only took us about 45 minutes to, to kind of unpack all of our feelings for it. But, hey, we're not done yet. We're going to go to someone who had a, a pivotal part in bringing this match to Nebraska fans around the country uh, on Saturday night. So pleased that we could finally sit down and talk with Lauren Cook-West, former Husker All-American setter and now the radio color analyst for the Husker Sports Network. We're going to move on now to Rotation 2 and our talk with Lauren Cook-West. Lauren. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thanks for having me. And before we get started, I have a funny story for you guys. Okay. <laughs> Lincoln will appreciate this. I, the whole, my whole purpose in, in being the color analyst when we are doing pregame is to try and break news that Lincoln tweets. And he always says, according to Lauren Cookless on the Huskers radio network or whatever broadcast, yes. pregame broadcast. This is the breaking news. And <laughs> that's literally my goal. Every time I go on the air is to break news good. to Lincoln. <laughs> well, good. I like to get that out, attribution out there and let you know people get, listen to the broadcast. Like what, you, what you should do. I mean, I'll tell you whenever Nebraska plays on the road and I have to cover from home, I sync up the broadcast too. I listen to you and JB and sorry, Big Ten announcers. I, I listen to you. Well, you guys Thank stretch you. the pregame show out from 30 minutes to an hour sometime fairly recently and so yeah it's probably feels pretty validating that there's people listening through the whole pregame show here we had no idea we were doing an hour pregame the day before the first match i think it's the red white scrimmage they go we sold an hour pregame show instead of 30 minutes so you guys are going to be on the air for an hour and jb and i are like what <laughs> i guess we better start planning and getting a little more content it's it's long and especially when you go five sets like last night we were on the air for over four hours well, I mean, when did you, did you have a hard time sleeping after that match? We just spent 45 minutes talking about Nebraska, Wisconsin, and we could probably go another 45 minutes with you. We're not going to put you through that. But just when you get off the air after a match like that, how do you even like wind down? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I was in tears last night. I didn't take myself off the air. I was sobbing and I could not control myself. And I think that just puts it into perspective how important last night's match was and how big that win was. But it took me, I had to, 
do some breathing to stop crying. And then, you know, we still had our post game shows. So I'm like, I get through this. And then once I got home, I'm checking the internet and, you know, looking at Twitter X or whatever it's called now and Instagram and just seeing everyone's posts and videos and pictures. And it was probably 1 a.m. by the time I went to sleep. Pull back the curtain for for our listeners and, and your listeners during the broadcast, Lauren. Your broadcast setup is fairly unique. Um, you, you are calling most matches remotely. Uh, John Baylor will be will be on site. How do you guys make this really unique setup work? And what are some things that you've learned over, just over the last couple of years of doing this? When, so back when COVID hit, we both went remote. And then JB finally went back to in-person and I just stayed remote. I had a daughter and it just, I didn't want to be traveling and didn't want to be taken away from her. So they were okay with me doing this remote setup and I enjoyed it. And it was, I mean, obviously it's not the same as being in person, but it still works. So just to give you a background, I go to this work co-working space and I set up, I have, it's all on my laptop is how I, I watch the match. I get a video feed, usually a CPN or NEP. Um, if they're putting it out on TV, it's a direct feed into that. So I'm getting the non-delayed version, real tempo timing of the match. There's no delay. And then I, so I have that on my laptop and then stat broadcast. I also watch on my laptop. Uh, so I have stats, I have video feed, and then I have, it's called a tie line and it's how I connect. So I, ha- I connect to our producer who's in studio uh, at Memorial Stadium is where the studio is. And then it's also connected to JB, who's either on the road or in Devaney. And we're all able to talk to each other. It's, I don't know how they, how they make it work. It's, it blows my mind every time I connect, just thinking that, that we're able to do all of this. But I think a lot of people joke and say, you know, where's Lauren? Is she in a cave doing this? A bomb shelter? Is she underneath the vanity? Is she hiding? What's going on? But it's, I try to make it for a few matches every year in person and then postseason just because we never know how the connection's going to be. But there's been times where my video feed has gone down and I'm calling the match blindly just by listening to what JB says. So I'm listening to how he's calling the play and then providing my expertise based on what he's saying, because I don't have a video feed or last night that broadcast went down. So we didn't have stats. Now that's not as critical, but we don't have stats for half the match. And I know that affects you as well, Lincoln, but there's definitely been some bumps in the road or there was at the beginning of the season, I, I couldn't hear JB, but he could hear me and then vice versa. We had some issues with, so our producer was trying to relay what he was saying to me and what I was saying to him. And it, it, We've had some tough times, but I feel like the feedback that we received is no one has really ever noticed. And as long as people don't notice, then we'll continue to do it. See, what what our listeners don't know is that Lauren's actually in a cave tonight joining us uh, on, on this show. If you, if you hear a little bit of a difference we in, in what Lauren sounds like and what we sound like, we had a little bit of Zoom difficulties getting set up there. So we're just we're just happy that Lauren could finally join us. Yes, for sure. I mean, even when you're calling it remote, I mean... Could you tell what the atmosphere was like last night during the Wisconsin match to I me? Mean, does that come across from what you're seeing and what you're kind of picking up? I mean, how, how, do, how did that impact what you're calling throughout the game when you're not in Devaney amongst the 9,000 people? It's not the same, but it also is because I hear everything through JB's headset. So I feel like I'm there. I'm seeing it on my computer screen. I'm hearing what's coming in through his headset. And then I'm also... I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but during the match, I really try to engage on Twitter. What is it? Twitter or X? What do we call it? We just say, we just say Twitter. We're not doing this X nonsense. (laughs) Okay. On Twitter, then 
uh, I am trying to engage with fans. So I'm trying to, to, to do all that to really stay involved and to make it feel like I'm there and feel like I'm a part of the environment. And again, it's not the same, but it's as close to it as I can be. So we want to get into the Wisconsin match a little bit more uh, in depth. And the thing that that I told Lincoln jumped out to me about the match last night is, you know, I think there's still some argument about who is the best team in the country? Who's the most athletic team in the country? I don't know that there's an argument anymore that the defining thing that defines this Nebraska team is its toughness and its resilience. I don't know if there is a tougher team in the country to go through what they went through last night, get their faces blocked off in game two still keep swinging and come back and force a fifth set. And then was especially Merritt Beeson and Harper Murray were able to do in game five. This is a team that has four freshmen. It's captain hadn't set foot on campus until like January. How does a team this young play with such toughness and resilience that normally you only see out of older teams that have gone through some wars already? I have no idea. (laughs) I think this is baffling everyone because it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I know they're competitive. I, I shared a story on the air last night and this freshman class, when they were on a recruiting visit uh, back when they were in high school and Nebraska was playing Wisconsin, Nebraska lost at home. They, all those girls, Harper, Bergen, uh, Laney wasn't obviously hadn't committed at the time, but they all sat in coach Andy Jackson, sat in coach Cook's office and said, when we're at Nebraska, we're going to beat Wisconsin. And that's, they just have that fire. They have that energy they're competitive. They also, this team loves each other. They, they play for each other. They tell coach cook like, Hey, love you. Have a great day. I mean, just this, I've never seen a closer team. They just, they truly all love each other and they all want to succeed. And I, I don't know how young players like this figured out a way to get it done last night. I mean, looking over the stat sheet, there's no way Nebraska should have won that match last night. So it was all mental. It was all their effort, their mindset. And I, I don't know what they're doing. Maybe Coach Cook needs to write another book about how the season is going and what he's done to make it all happen. But it's, it's yeah. really impressive to watch. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you also say just kind of mentioned their, their chemistry too. I mean, they're hiding their phone and trying to, to, scare, to scare Coach Cook. And uh, it just it seems like a very casual uh, homey atmosphere. And just really, I mean, a, a lot of programs talk about that's a family too, but this is just, I don't know if it's family is the right word, but it's just, they're very comfortable and have those bonds with each other too. I mean, what, what is that different than you've seen from, is, is this a different coach cook than we've seen to kind of allow this to happen and develop? 100%. He's so soft now. He gives them <laughs> off, of, off of practice. He never used to do that. He's, takes them to go get coffee, never used to do that, takes them out to dinner. I mean, it's, it's they, he, what his phone background is him and Harper Murray. It, it's just not even his own granddaughter. It's <laughs> Harper Murray. It's, it's, it's him and Harper. So it's just, they're, they're just one unit. They're mm-hmm. all on the same page. They all love each other, play for each other. And it's, they work. To, it's not a family. It's like, yeah, I don't know what the word is. It's family. It's unit. It's just, they're, they're connected on a deep level. I was I saying, Lincoln, is, is, a little bit early, earlier. I never thought in a million years I would see John Cook wearing a little red cowboy hat after a match and, and be like surrounded by uh, a bunch of students. That that is just not something I'm used to yeah. seeing after big wins. And I've seen plenty of those big wins, but like I thought he was going to ride off the court on a little tricycle or something. Yeah. It was the like the most surreal thing I've ever seen. 
I was going to say, is, is Madden the real culprit of uh, the new personality? Is, is it Grandpa Cook that's really kind of become soft in, in, his, in his age? It may be. I heard Becca Alex, she was doing an interview, and she said there's, you know, there's Coach Cook and then there's Grandpa. And I think those two mix together at times, and maybe that's part of it. She's kind of cracked his cold <laughs> heart, and now it's open and warm, and he, he sees the game and sees his players and sees everything differently because of, of that grandpa status. But the, he told me after the match, Coach Cook told me after the match last night, he's like, I was living my best life. That cowboy hat, because I was ready to surf and body surf in the student section. I'm like, you should have. Matt Rule was body surfing through his team. And they only beat Northwestern. You beat the number one team in the country. Why not? Um, we know that Merritt Beeson had another wonderful match last night, Lauren. I'm really curious how, how this player who, you know, had never stepped foot on campus before transferring in immediately becomes a captain. What did they see in her that right away they said, this is someone we want to lead this team? She's, she's like the mother hen. Just, it's, and she's so positive. You meet, I don't, you guys, well, Lincoln, you've probably been around Merit. Jeff, have you been around Merit? I have not met her yet, no. You talk to her and you feel like you've known her for 20 years. And she's always so kind and so sweet. And if it tells you anything, Matt and my daughter is very shy. Her favorite player is Merritt Beeson. Mm. And she, and she, her, Merritt was her favorite player before she even met Merritt in person. So that just shows you everyone loves Merritt. They just, by mm. looking at her or seeing her in an interview or watching her play, it's just the way she carries herself and, and how positive she always is and, and just happy. And it, I just think that that's what they needed in a team leader. And, and the girls feed off of it. I mean, they don't look, it hasn't been like it has or it doesn't look like it has been in past years where you have a leader who maybe gets tentative in tight situations or is, you know, yelling at players because they're not getting the job done. They trust merit. They look to merit. She's always talking in the huddle and everyone is just, I don't want to say always has a smile on their face because there's times where, you know, you're not smiling because you're down and you have to fight back, but everyone just always looks happy around merit. Yeah. How do you, you kind of mentioned maybe a little bit just that not shirking away in, in big moments too, but how does that being a mother hen translate to on the court? Is, is, is her interactions with teammates different or what do you see on the court that really kind of elevates her leadership and makes her, uh, makes her such a key member of the team? What I've noticed is if someone makes a mistake, whether it's a serving error or an attacking error, or they get blocked, she's the first one to go over to them, talk to them and pat them on the back. And I don't know what she's saying. I'm not down in the huddle, but She's always, she touches everyone, patting on the back or giving a high five or holding onto their hand for an extra second and saying something to them. She just, she knows what to do and, and what each player needs in certain situations. And usually that's a, a setter tendency is setters are the ones who are constantly talking to the attackers and, and trying to keep everyone on the same page and saying, you know, let's go here. We need to side out here or whatever it may be. But I feel like that's merit this year. and. Mm-hmm. Part of that was probably because she plays all six rotations, but she's just, she's always talking and she's always touching. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you brought up that um, sort of that responsibility that usually falls on a setter's shoulders is to kind of be the chief communicator because they've got to know how everyone likes things differently. Um, what, what does impress you the most right now about Bergen Riley? This program doesn't have very many people come in as a true freshman and, and have to shoulder those responsibilities. You've seen her, you know, play now through half of a season and, and got to know her maybe a little bit before the season started. What impresses you most about this freshman? There's a lot. I, I used to be very critical about setting on the broadcast 
now I'm, I feel like I never talk about it because she gets the job done. You don't really even notice her out there. She's not a huge presence, but she plays almost perfect. Every, I mean, she didn't play perfect last night, but most matches, she never, her location is always on the money. She rarely misses. She sees the opposing block in defense, so she knows how to get one-on-one situation. I mean, you see a lot of one-on-one situations, and that's Sutter's job is you're trying to make it as easy as possible for your attackers. She also is very difficult to read. So setters, there a lot of them have tendencies where maybe they love to set against the flow or with the flow, or maybe when they're going to back set, they start arching their back. And Bergen doesn't have those tendencies. Sometimes she sets with the flow. Sometimes she sets against the flow. When she's setting a back set, she looks the same as when she's setting forwards. And she also can block. I mean, a lot of setters who run a 5-1, their weakness is blocking because they're so concerned about transitioning off the net, getting ready to set. And, you know, she can go up there. And, and she, I think she blocked uh, Tommy Thomas I Lara last night. You know, one of the best attackers in the country. So it, she just has it all. She can play defense. Serving, she needs to work on. <laughs> but so does the rest of the Everyone. team. Other than that, though, she, she just, she really can do it all. And, and she does it with such composure on her face. It, she's yeah. never too high. She's never too low. And I don't know if you guys listened to, uh, if you had any interviews last night with Coach Cook or listened to our post-game broadcast, but Coach Cook said that two things that stood out to me. Bergen was the one who told him to pull the green card mm-hmm. because she saw a touch in the net. Setters have incredible vision. They see everything. They feel everything. So she's wise beyond her ears to be telling Coach Cook to pull that at, you know, at that juncture. And then the other thing was there was a timeout. I don't know if it was in the fifth set or if it was in an earlier set, but there was a timeout and Bergen had made a wrong set decision. I think she, she was relying too heavily on the outside. She needed to go to the middle of the right side. She comes over before Coach Cook even says anything. She said to him, you know, hey, I know what I need to do. Here's what I need to fix. X, Y, and Z. And that was exactly what Coach Cook was going to tell her. So it's almost like they're on the same brain wavelength because they're so connected. She knows what he's going to say and what he expects of her. And I think that sets her apart from so many other setters in the country. Well, and you mentioned she had some struggles last night. I mean, a lot of players had struggles when Wisconsin's putting up 12 blocks in, in game two, but she had some misses. She was missing her middles. She was, you know, I, I very rarely do you see her just completely misfire on a, on a set to the pin, but that happened once or twice, but then to be able to kind of pull it together in game five and they hit over 500 in game five, you know, did you have any conversations with coach cook or anyone after the match about how does, how does a freshman flip the switch and put all of that stuff behind them through the first four sets and come out and just really nail it in game five when it matters most. We, we didn't have any conversations about it. Again, I don't know how they, how they did it, how they do it. It's, it's a mindset. And they flipped that into gear last night and found a way to get it done and be two points better. And that's been, I mean, for I feel like for a long time, Jeff, probably back when you were covering the Brass Bible, it was always how, how are you two points better? Mm-hmm. And that's still a goal now, especially with some of the losses that they've had within the last few years, two points could make all the difference. So I just think that they're competitive. It's the mindset. I don't know how they flipped it, how they figured it out, but they did. I, that's, Probably something I need to look into. <laughs> Ask about. For sure. I mean, we talked a lot about, about Bergen. I mean, she came in well, I don't know, ready made, but she she played with the senior national team. She'd been been in the uh, junior national team pipeline for a long time. I mean, what what does this what does Nebraska look for in a setter when they're recruiting her? And and what kind of tools they need to have and what the coaches think they can develop once they're here. So kind of 
Yeah. What, what are they, what are the coaches looking for when they're recruiting a setter? The biggest one that they're looking for is, or I guess two biggest things they're looking for is consistent tempo. Uh, and a lot of that is, is with hand placement, how the ball comes out of their hands. We always say, you know, you're setting the nectar, juicing the nectar, setting butter. It, it just, it looks really pretty, really smooth. And how it comes out of your hands affects that tempo. And as long as that's consistent, the location, the tempo, uh, that's something they're really looking for because that's difficult to teach, you know, once they get to this level. And then composure is the other one. Uh, how, do, you know, what kind of teammate are you? How do you hold yourself? How do you react in, in big situations? And Bergen's a perfect example. She, I mean, look at last night, wasn't playing well, found a way to propel her team to hit over 500 in the fifth set. So she just, she held it together, kept it together, found a way to get it done. She's a great teammate. They all love her. Um, but composure is another one. Dude, have they done anything to her technique since she arrived? I imagine some setters, you know, it's like a, it's like a basketball shot. We don't care how you're shooting it. As long as it goes in, we don't care how you're setting it. As long as it gets to where it needs to go. And some coaches might have a very specific way they want things. Have they done anything to adjust Bergen's technique since she's got there? I know the one thing that they've worked on is uh, when you're back setting, you as a setter, you're going over your right eye or your right shoulder. Uh, and that way you're leading your attackers not too tight on the net, but on the net so they're able to swing in front of them. A lot of the times setters will set over their left eye or left shoulder, that ball comes off the net, and then mm -hmm. those attackers are swinging from behind their head. Well, what Bergen was doing is she was just setting straight back over her head. So she wasn't leading her attackers. And I know they've been working on even coming off the net if you're setting at the 10-foot line or if you're on the net, just always going over that right eye, finishing over that right shoulder. And you'll see her, she almost has, is over-exaggerating it now. And she's really improved with that. I mean, she has always been a great back setter, but she's really improved her back setting with the slide, going to Merit Beeson, whether it's in the front row or back row. And you'll see her after she sets, she turns over her right shoulder because she's over-exaggerating that move, trying to make sure that the set goes where it needs to go and not going straight back over her head. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Thank you for pulling back the curtain a little bit on setter play. It was one of the, one of the big reasons we wanted to have you on. I, there's yeah. very few people I feel like that can explain this to, uh, to our audience. Yeah. W one of the other things that's really impressed me with Bergen is that especially the last couple matches, she is, I don't, she wins almost every single joust at the net, whether, um, whether it's a block or she gets credit for an attack. And even she, I think it was last match, uh, that she had one handed and was going against someone, but one handed, she was able to stuff that attack too. I mean, what, what does she do that, allows her to be such a good at that skill. You always want to be the second one to jump in those situations. And Bergen, it's all about timing. Bergen times it perfectly. She's last to jump and she has all the momentum going up. And setters usually win joust. And she's, you're right, she's got up with one hand, two hands, but it's all about timing and uh, power and height don't really matter. It's just, it's that timing aspect and you want to be last to jump up. Awesome. Lauren, uh, la last question and then we'll let you go. So thanks so much again for spending some time with us tonight. Nebraska is now 19 and 0. They have a win over the number one team in the country. They have a win at Stanford. Uh, those are probably the two most impressive wins that any team in the country has this year. And yet they, they're, they've got four freshmen regularly playing. What is the ceiling on this team and, and how much better can they get this year? Well, I think we've seen them play close to their best glimpses of this season, but they haven't done it throughout an entire match. Maybe Stanford was the closest they came to, to playing all three sets that or come, what it was that three or four sets that match or four. Four. playing, playing all those sets at a high level, but it, it's 
they're up and down. And that's expected because there's a lot of young players. And even though they say they have experience, it's, they're trying to figure this out. They're trying to figure out how the Big Ten works. It's their first time doing all this, even though they went to Brazil and they went through the sand season and in short indoor spring season. But it's uh, I this I think this team has a whole nother level that they can reach. Now, hopefully, they get there by December because they're they'll need to, and hopefully, they don't burn out before then because this Big Ten season is long and it already feels like they've played a lot of really tough matches and have exerted themselves, but. It's, uh, I think, cutting down on errors is going to be, that's, I think, what they really have to figure out, and hopefully they can, but I think this team, they just, they have a whole other other level they can get to, and I know we've seen it in practice, I've heard about it, I've seen it myself firsthand, but it's how you transfer that out onto the court and do it for three sets consistently, and yeah, I I just, I hope they can get there by December, but it's, this team has has a high ceiling, and I just, I don't think we've seen that yet. Well, excellent. Well, I appreciate all your insight. I learned a lot too. I appreciate having on this. Again, uh, Lauren Cook-West with the uh, Husker Sports Radio. She's the uh, color commentator for the radio broadcast. So be sure to check in on her, turn down the TV or watch whatever, just listen to her and turn down the TV and sync up the broadcast. It's it's very insightful. You always learn something and it's a great part of the Husker experience. So thank you, Lauren, for coming on and uh, sharing your thoughts. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. This was fun, and maybe I'll have to bring you two on kicking back with the cooks and put you in the hot seat. Gotta start thinking of my lesson and uh, lesson and advice now. Start thinking of that. Thanks again to Lauren Cook West for joining us, and we are going to move straight into rotation three and take a quick look around the rest of the Big Ten. Uh, only a few matches significance too of uh, going on. I think we feel kind of fallen into our pecking order for the conference. Not a lot of upsets, but there were a couple. I think where you get the middle, the middle of the conference where a lot of the interesting matches happen. So uh, a couple of them that caught our note um, midweek, Purdue avenged a loss to Indiana. Indiana had uh, knocked off Purdue and won their rivalry and Purdue returned the favor on their home court uh, with a four set win to kind of reestablish their dominance. Uh, and then both those teams were involved in big matches this weekend too. I think kind of just defining the pecking order as well too. Indiana, uh, gets a big win against Ohio State uh, in five sets, really kind of to, again, establish them as the top four or five team in the league. And then Purdue uh, really shakes things up and I think also clears things out for Nebraska-Wisconsin a little bit. They top, mm-hmm. they went into Happy Valley, topped Penn State in four, and looked pretty good doing it too. Chloe Chancon had uh, 20 kills, hit 405. Uh, Eva Hudson backed her up, or those two running mates with 19 kills. Uh, Penn State, once again, one-person show. Jeff, Jess Mruzik had 27 kills. So uh, really, really, those I mean, there's like one other match going on on Sunday that we were recording before it gets done of Michigan State, Minnesota, which I think would be interesting to see how those two, if Minnesota can get back on track and figure out uh, itself. But uh, with this weekend, after today's matches, we are halfway through uh, the Big Ten. Um, and we, we have the standings in front of us. Jeff, does anything pop out to you about the standings or how we're kind of shaken out, shaken out through the halfway through, through this point. No, I think uh, this is kind of, you know, maybe with the potential exception of Indiana um, having a successful year, this is kind of what we thought the, the, the stands could look like the big surprise actually is Minnesota. I mean, the results of Sunday afternoon's match pending Minnesota is five and four right now. could be six and four at the end of today could be 500, but that's the team that's sort of the usual suspect missing from the top of the Big Ten standings. 
at the halfway point, Nebraska leads the league at 10 and 0. Wisconsin's a game back at 9 and 1. Penn State's there at 8 and 2. Their only losses are to Nebraska and to um and to Purdue on Sunday. And then does does Penn State only play as Wisconsin once? I think yes. so. That's another way. I, I don't know who made this Big Ten schedule for Wisconsin, but I hope they're sending Kelly Sheffield's like sending them some flowers. Um, so Penn State's uh, in by themselves in third at eight and two. Purdue now by themselves in fourth at seven and three, and then Indiana six and four uh, in fifth place. If you you know right now, Lincoln, those five teams—Nebraska, Wisconsin, Penn State, Purdue, and Indiana—are probably the only ones I would feel super conf- confident in saying they're going to make the NCAA tournament. Uh, it's possible Minnesota gets hot in the second half. And I think as long as Minnesota finishes above 500 in the conference, they will probably make the tournament. But like, this isn't a year I think where in the big 10, you're going to have eight conference tournaments making the dance because there's some good volleyball being played all around the country. And I could see the big 12 getting an extra team in the sec that we're going to talk about here in a bit has some good teams. So, you know, uh, maybe the, the NCAA selection committee continues to reward the big 10 for being the top conference, but you know, maybe that means this year, instead of being a seven or eight bid league, they're, they're getting six in. Yeah, I think, the like you said, those five teams, I think, are good. Um, Ohio State continues to underwhelm, and they have too much talent to be like four and six halfway through. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if Minnesota can get a little healthy and figure things out, too. But uh, Indiana's been a very pleasant team. It's be fun to watch them mm-hmm. uh, down the second half of the season to figure out uh, what they, they, they do. So that's a look at the Big Ten. Uh, now let's look at what's going around the country. There's some notes of uh, matches of significance too. Um, Texas had one match this week, and they uh, they played TCU, and they were on the ropes against the uh, Frogged Horned Horned Frogs. Yeah, but and, and this is always a. Uh, I mean, every every team in the in the country likes to beat Texas. Every team in Texas, especially, likes to beat Texas. And then you've got TCU, who has a player on their roster, Melanie Para, who is a former Longhorn who transferred to TCU. And has become TCU's go-to attacker. Uh, she went off in this match against Texas. TCU pushes the horns to five sets. Uh, Texas comes back and wins 15-13 uh, in the fifth on a service error. So, again, another sort of uh, anticlimactic finish to um, to a big match there. Um, you look at the SEC. Arkansas uh, had a mixed bag weekend. They beat Tennessee 3-1. So, that Arkansas was ranked number 10 this week. They beat Tennessee, who's ranked number 12. But then the Saturday. Afternoon, Kentucky comes back, and this afternoon being Sunday, Kentucky, who has has had their struggles this season, ranked twentieth this year, um, beats Arkansas in five and and snaps Arkansas's winning streak, which I think had been maybe 16, 13, 16, 16 matches. Yeah, they they've Arkansas lost to Wisconsin, the, I think, on the second weekend, and they had not lost since. So yeah, they've been been riding high on the Kentucky, hog. Kentucky, oh god, uh, don't worry, I'll edit that out. I'll edit that that terrible joke out. Uh, Arkansas was two or no, excuse me. Kentucky was two and seven in their non-conference play. They're now eight and one in the sec, um, and tied for first. So Kentucky and Arkansas now leading the sec. Yeah. Uh, and then you go out West to see some more chaos. And for those of you who are, I think the, the sick on the sickos committee, you stay up volleyball late. sickos, volleyball sickos. Uh, you stay up late. I think Friday, it was a Friday night. It was Friday night, Friday night. Yeah. Early, early, early Saturday morning. Uh, USC knocked off number four, Washington State, uh, in a reverse sweep. Washington State really dominated the first two sets. They weren't even very contested, but, uh, and actually led the third set 20 to 19 as well. So they were had a chance to close out a sweep, but, uh, USC behind, uh, another former Texas Longhorn player, Skylar Fields, 
rallied and won a couple close, uh, close to the close third set, close four set. And they, they pulled away a little bit. They had a good little run in the middle of the fifth set to pull away and win that one. So, uh, Skylar Fields is so good, man, for, yeah. for USC. She can, she can jump out the gym. She can hit over the top of almost any block. So she's uh, going to be a first team All American candidate for USC. Uh, London Weijie, their freshman, who uh, I think we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, reclassified to go to college this year. She she should be a senior in high school right now. She was back, I think, after some missing some time with an injury, and uh, USC gets a huge win over Washington State in the Galen Center. Um, upsets also in the Pac-12. Colorado on Sunday sweeps Arizona State. That was an Arizona State team that um, had designs on the the top part of the Pac-12. Um, our friend Danny Busboom Kelly at Louisville got a scare from Wake Forest, but Louisville comes back in a reverse sweep. Did you watch any of that match? I watched a little bit of it. Kind of once they, once they, once I got the the, the eyes eyes emoji and Wake Forest is up to nothing, it turned on, and then I don't know. Louisville's done this a lot too, where they just toy around with their opponents who are they have clearly more at talent than and and uh, just don't they mess around a little bit and just takes a while for them yeah. to find. But they were dominant those last three sets. And then the same thing happened uh, on Sunday against Virginia Tech. Louisville just drops a set they probably shouldn't have, and that's how they lost to NC State a couple weeks ago too. They're they're just they have those lulls where their play dips a little bit, and the opponents mm-hmm. take sets off them. They're still winning a lot of matches, and I think they get up for the big matches like they swept Pitt last week. But just these lower ACC team or mid mid ACC teams, mm-hmm. um, they just back off a little bit, and other teams can take advantage. Uh, the other match of note that we aren't going to cover here because it is on Sunday night, Stanford and Oregon are taking on each other. Another uh, battle atop of the Pac-12. That'll be on ESPN, so hopefully you get a chance to watch that. If not, uh, where is that back. match? Is that at Stanford or in Oregon? Ooh, Do you know? Question. I, oh, I shouldn't have put you on the spot. It's all right. We'll edit out the really long pause while Lincoln looks this up. It is at Eugene, Oregon. It is where Black Knight, for those of you who may be attended that or want to address to honor your duck fans uh it's, it's a, but is at eugene at the uh night center with one of the uh ugly floors in college volleyball oh my gosh the like the depth perception floor like pac-12 if, if you could pass a lot if we're gonna have go to congress to like get some nil uh legislation maybe we could tack on a writer to that to outlaw whatever oregon's doing with the, the matthew knight arena court up there it's terrible i get a lot of complaints about tcus as well Oh, yes. Also, with the, the, the scales of the horned frogs. Like, come on, people. We don't need to make this too hard. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Um, all right, so that's a look around the country. We move into Rotation 5, uh, something that I think is kind of interesting. Um, Nebraska fans, just because of how well Nebraska has recruited 
in recent history. Always love to keep an eye on the uh, the the recruiting class rankings. And, and Lincoln's a little more knee deep into this now than than I am. But Prep Volleyball, who is one of the few um, publications that puts out a um, national rankings for high school recruits, released their class of 2025 team rankings. Uh, this week, um, Nebraska used to being up in that one, two or three spot is falling all the way to number four for the class of 2025. Oh, no. But, um, as you might expect, always near the top of the recruiting rankings. Texas has the number one class in the country led by. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to butcher her first name. But Macaria Spears. I hope I'm yeah, saying I mean, that he right. Shows by Kari. Yeah, Kari is what she uh, goes by. OK, so Kari Spears, the, the top ranked recruit in the country and outside hitter daughter of uh, former NFL player Marcus Spears um, and, her, and, and her mother played in the WNBA for a short bit too. So oh, she's, got, she's got so much athleticism, very athletic parents, Kari Spears. She's going to be heading to Austin um, to be the, the number one um, player in that recruiting class. What really jumps off the page though, as you kind of go down these rankings is who's in that number two spot, which is Texas A&M. Uh, the Aggies have, have not been in this position in a long, long time. They have a brand new coach named Jamie Morrison, who has uh, ties within the USA developmental program. But also he was a coach in the Olympics, like yeah. he coached the Dutch national team. Um, he's uh, once again, a few weeks ago, we talked about with Lee Feinswong, how the SEC is really leveling up the, the, the level of coaches that they're hiring. Texas A&M came to play when they hired Jamie Morrison, and now he's making it pay off in pretty short order with the number two recruiting class in the country um, for that. Aggies, number three is Minnesota, and then the Huskers um, fall right there at number four. Um, so, Lincoln, can you tell us what you know just a little bit about this class of 2025 recruiting class? So these are going to be players who come to college in the fall or maybe spring of uh, 2025. Yeah, so I think that really, I mean, you know, I was surprised to see this in my head, just kind of tracking the commitments, because these players were first being able to recruit it earlier this summer. June 15th is when coaches could contact them, so... A lot of the commitments came in fast and furious. Just in my own personal kind of tracking of this, I had Nebraska pegged at number two. Um, so I was surprised to see them. In the O'Neill ratings? Yes. They were my, number two? Yes, in my power rankings of recruiting classes. Because I think te Texas has number one, too. I mean, Spears, I think, uh, depending on uh, which publication to go by or your own personal rankings, too, is kind of number one, number two, with Abigail Mullen, who is still uncommitted uh, at the moment as well, too. Uh, but they also have a big prize in uh, Abby Vanderwall, uh, who's going to Texas as well, too. She was on that uh, junior national team and was the best player at the under-19 Worlds and uh, really was one of the issues, kind of the main uh, outside hitter for them, along with uh, Taraya Sigler, for, for who is the Nebraska commit, too. So those two are kind of the best two leading outside hitters in the class if you go by what the, the junior national team looks by. So, again, being a junior national team, that's where Jamie Morrison, he's been heavily involved, too. But you look at who they have committed, um, but I don't, I don't, did not recognize any of those names as young people. I mean, they about probably were involved with the developmental team, but I don't believe any of them were part of the twelve that mm -hmm. played on the uh, the national teams either for the U twenty, U nineteen, or U twenty one teams, which were both um, high school players for the most part. Uh, Minnesota's big prize is Kelly Kinney. Uh, she's an outside hitter from Florida and really another dynamic outside athlete. Uh, but then you get to Nebraska too. Like I said, Sigler. It's really kind of the, the prize of this. She's ranked number five by prep volleyball and also Campbell Flynn. I'm really excited about her. She's another six foot, six foot one setter. She's left-handed uh, comes mm -hmm. from this come from, comes from the same club as Harper Murray. So she's from uh, the Detroit, Michigan area, the legacy uh, legacy club team up there. So she's doing really good. 
And then Brian Hunter is a right side hitter. She's an, another left-handed attacker uh, out of North Carolina. Blue under the radar. She's ranked 17th in this too, but I think she's just kind of scratching her potential. I saw her play at the uh, Dream Team camp this summer. She she is going to be a good opposite. And like a good opposite, she's left-handed too, which I think opens up a whole other world too. And mm-hmm. then uh, rounding like out those lefties that hit on the right side. For sure. And then rounding out Nebraska's class is uh, Caroline Bach, who is a libero for Lincoln Lutheran, uh, who is one of the better liberos in the state. Uh, Probably the best libero for her age group and one of the top two or three, regardless of class, in the state of Nebraska, too. So I would have put Nebraska second. I still think Texas went those top two, whether Mm -hmm. it's Spears and Vanderwall, a little bit higher end. Um, But just I was even you look at the rankings that Prep Volleyball had, too, and I'm like, how did you put Nebraska fourth behind? behind the rankings of the other players too, but uh, I think this I is know. a new thing that they're releasing the class ranking so early. I never remember this happening this early. You only saw, you know, under the last iteration of prep volleyball, they would only release the class rankings maybe in the spring of those players senior year. So they're, they're getting a little bit of a head start on it. And like, or you know, just until like commitment day. Yeah. Or right, signing day, just like football and just like basketball recruiting classes, they're, take all of these rankings with like massive shakers of salt and huge asterisks. Um, a lot of players continue to develop some plateau as they reach their late high school career. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, it's pretty, pretty safe that Texas has two really talented players. Nebraska has got four commits in the top 25, but you know, we've seen time and time mm-hmm. again that no matter if you have a number one ranked recruiting class, it doesn't necessarily guarantee you uh national championship. Yeah. So a number one recruiting class varies from year to year. There's not, that's not, doesn't mean that you're get guaranteed success too. So this is class is the class that was replacing Nebraska's current juniors. Uh, so that's why they do, they're on the setter cycle. So Campbell will replace Kennedy or Sigler will replace Krause bait and horse at the outside hitter. Um, mm-hmm. our Hunter will replace, uh, uh, Beeson as well too. So, um, that's kind of what Nebraska's figuring out. I, I, will, I will say kind of on the recruiting front too, and signing day is coming up in November. I've got a lot of questions about how scholarships going to work for Nebraska. We're going to tackle it probably during <laughs> signing day. That'll be a good time to look at this, who's going to sign for the class of 2024 and how this is all going to work out with Nebraska has no seniors and they're adding new people mm-hmm. to their roster too. So um, we're not going to cover it now. We'll cover it during right after signing day. So stay tuned for that. And also what what your high school recruits don't, take into account is what you're going to end up getting for the transfer portal. And we know Nebraska has always been fairly active in the transfer portal, just like the Wisconsin team we saw on Saturday night. So um, just a, another way to kind of stock your roster with as much talent as possible and for, for the big 10 battles ahead. So Nebraska got a couple big 10 battles ahead uh, coming up in rotation six, although quite a step down in competition from what they saw this past weekend, Huskers are at home again. Um, so you get two more chances to see them at the Devaney Center on Friday night against Maryland, who is, I think, maybe eighth or ninth in the conference standings right now. Uh, Rutgers on Saturday. Rutgers is near the bottom, along with um, with Iowa, who's winless in the conference. The big question, right, Lincoln, is is how does Nebraska avoid a letdown? We've seen the mental toughness from this young group when they're playing uh, A-list competition how are they going to translate that when it's when it's maybe B or C list competition? Yeah. Because it wasn't long ago where Nebraska was going on the road to Michigan and Michigan State and looking like they were going to drop some sets. Yeah, and again, I this seems like everything ties back to volleyball day in Nebraska this season too. But this is where that experience I think can help. Kind of uh, they can lean on that what they learned from that because here you had this giant once in a lifetime playing in front of ninety thousand people. Well, how do you go back the next week and play? 
play another match in, in an indoor arena and kind of re recreate the excitement and energy from that too. So I think that'll be important for Nebraska too, but the way that John cook has this team so mentally strong and mentally prepared to, I mean, this is week 11. So hopefully um, match 11, match 12, that Nebraska will focus up. And, and I think it's good that it's Maryland coming in first too. Maryland is a little bit stronger too. They, they, they've, they've posed a little more challenge too. They aren't the blocking juggernaut that they have been in years past. Mm-hmm. Raynell Jones has finally graduated and departed uh, from College Park, Maryland. But oh, we get to are... hear on BTN Plus. Oh yes, yeah, so she she does do uh, does commentary, so uh, mm-hmm. you do get to see her every now and then. We so. get to hear her so much. Um, Maryland fourteen and eight overall, four and six in the Big Ten. Uh, had lost four straight before they came out and they beat Iowa. On Saturday, uh, the kids, Lincoln, like to use mid as a pejorative, meaning um, sort of middle tier, not real great. Uh, that's a great way to describe Maryland, I think, this year. They're very mid. They're in the middle of the pack in most statistical categories in the Big Ten. They do have a standout middle. Anastasia Russ is number four in the conference in hitting percentage. She's hitting 387. And they're a pretty balanced offense as well. Um, they have five players who have at least 120 kills. That usually speaks pretty highly of your setter. And Maryland's got a pretty good one. Uh, senior setter Sydney Dowler has already been named the conference setter of the week twice this year. Um, Sam Sire, I think, is how you pronounce their outside hitter's name. Uh, she had 20 kills in uh, in a match against Minnesota earlier this year. So Maryland does have some weapons, but you know, certainly not to the level of a of a Penn State or a or a Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah, so they'll, they'll be a good challenge. I'll be kind of welcome them into Vanny, but again, should be a match that Nebraska, hopefully, if they're riding, focused on the mat, the task at hand, they take care of business fairly early. And then they get a bounce back really quick. The next night, uh, they will take on the Scarlet Knights of Rutgers. Rutgers, they, they feel like they're rebuilding and kind of retooling their roster and always look promising because they have a very good non-conference record, but realizing they play absolutely nobody during non-conference is going mm-hmm. to be a uh, paper tiger a little bit too. So they did score one of the big wins of the season. Uh, their first win against a ranked opponent, they beat uh, Minnesota when the uh, Gophers were ranked number 16. So that's the first time that they've ever beat a ranked opponent. The problem is that's their only big 10 win this year. So mm-hmm. they don't have much. They are, like I said, we said earlier, they are playing Illinois while we're taping this. So um, that's their only one, but there again, they're kind of on the lower half of a lot of statistical. I tried to find something that they excelled in, and they're, they're not, I don't even, calling them mid may be a, a compliment, but they got a lot of work to do. Yeah, as and, and it's just kind of been the story of the Rutgers program for, for quite a while. So Nebraska gets uh, Maryland and Rutgers both at the Devaney Center um, this coming weekend on Friday and Saturday. So, hey, thank you very much for joining us again on Volleyball State. Thanks to Lauren Cook-West for being our guest uh, this week, you can find us on social media at Volleyball Pod. You can email the show at volleyballstate at gmail.com. And Lincoln, I can't believe we got all the way to the end. You put you're putting out so much great content right now. You're Appreciate doing videos, you're doing stories. Like where can the people yes. keep up day-to-day coverage of Nebraska volleyball that you provide? You can find all my writing at Huskers Illustrated. We post uh, videos there and we uh, Huskers Illustrated also uh, we put out videos so we're a little match couple minute long match recaps as well too for those who like to use their ears more so than their eyes you can watch me too whatever uh but you can follow <laughs> all my coverage at uh, twitter at lincoln underscore vb i actually for the first time ever did a game I, I joined threads and did something on threads so uh if you're on threads and you want to follow me there too i think that that account is lincoln a underscore vb 
on thread. So we're breaking all sorts of new uh, social media grounds too. And also for those of you who stuck with us, the very end, some late breaking news, Minnesota beats, uh, beats Michigan state too. And Illinois is up four, nothing in the fifth set against Rutgers. So Illinois went five with Rutgers. They're still, yeah. they're still going five. So yes, right. they're Illinois is up four, nothing in the fifth. All right. There you go. Late breaking news, 14 hours after it happens. Thanks very much <laughs> to uh, the podcast house media as well for giving us a home. You can find all the great podcast house media shows at podcastmedia.com. We'll be back next week to recap Nebraska's weekend against Maryland Rutgers and talk about anything else that happened in the world of volleyball because that's what we do right here on Volleyball State.